You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Last week, we talked with photojournalist Peter van Agtmaal about the images he's captured in modern conflict zones and the stories he wants to tell with them about what war does to individuals and communities. Today, we're looking again at visual representations of 21st century conflict and its impact, but in a different medium, not photography, but drawing. My guest today is award-winning artist and illustrator George Butler, whose visual reportage in places like Iraq and Syria has drawn plaudits from the likes of Jeremy Bowen. George draws in pen, ink and watercolour, and his art covers a huge range of topics, but he specialises in current affairs. He said in the past that his work takes him to places which most other people are trying to leave. So, for example, in August 2012, George walked from Turkey across the border into Syria, where as a guest of the Free Syrian Army, he said about drawing the impacts of the civil war on people and towns. Over the last decade, he's been to refugee camps in Beka Valley, oil fields in Azerbaijan, to Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Mosul, and to Gaza with Oxfam, among many other places. His drawings have been published by The Times, The New York Times, The Guardian, BBC, CNN, Der Spiegel, and a host of other media outlets. And they've also been exhibited at the Imperial War Museum North and the V&A Museum, among other places. And George has also recently published a book called Drawn Across Borders, True Stories of Migration, which we're going to talk about and which I strongly recommend people buy. In Jeremy Bowen's words, George's work gets to the essence of war and the experiences of the human beings caught up in it. And Michael Morpurgo, another expert in representing war, has written, George Butler is the Paul Nash of our era. No one has captured in art the destruction and suffering of modern warfare as powerfully. With his pen and brush, he tells the stories of the suffering and of the refugee and the migrant wherever the wars are in this turbulent world. There is terrible beauty in his drawings. He means what he paints, opens our eyes and hearts to the suffering, tells the tale of our fractured humanity, helps us know more clearly the lives of others caught up in conflict so that we can begin to mend shattered lives to give shelter and homes and hope where there is so little. So we're going to be talking about the impact which George wants to have with his drawings as we dive into some of his work in a minute. But first of all, George, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today and welcome to the Visualising War podcast. Thank you for having me. That was the, the nicest introduction everyone has ever given me. It's very much deserved. So I wonder if we can kick off by you just telling us a bit about your journey as an artist. When did you start drawing and why? It's always been in the background, I think. My mum was an art teacher and so it's been there, but I didn't really ever consider it would be a career or that it was something that people did for their lifetimes. It wasn't until the end of school, really, um, when I had this art teacher that suggested I, if I wasn't good at anything else, I should do art, carry on to a foundation course at Kingston. And, um, and then I did the illustration BA there. So it was sort of four years, the chance to practice. And it was, it was sort of within those four years that I realized that drawing could be a thing and that we've used it as a formula for reporting news and that lots of other artists have done it before. But we just, in the last 30 years or so, have forgotten about the, the power of those, of a hand-drawn line and of, of, of sitting down with someone and listening to them. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, I wonder if, if you can dive into that right away. So obviously, when we think of modern journalism, the images that spring to mind tend to be photographs, video footage on our news reports. And we, we are flooded with that all the time at the moment. So are there things you think that drawing can do as a form of reportage that photography, for example, can't? I think, yes, I think lots. I suppose I'm competing for space with writers and now podcasts and documentaries uh, online. So drawing offers uh, the artist's opinion. It offers something that's handmade. It offers chance to see something differently. Quite good at taking very vulnerable moments and seeing them through the lens of a human, not through the lens of a, of a machine like a camera. But I think the process is most important part really the most important difference is the time that drawing allows somebody to sit and watch or observe or listen and very often when I've been sitting on the street or in places like Afghanistan or in West Africa without real purpose the drawing just allowed me to learn and to watch and I think slowing down is a very important thing that we've probably forgotten slightly mm -hmm. how to do at the moment. Maybe um, two years of COVID reminded us a bit of that, but certainly this immediacy on our phones is lost. And so drawing has, has allowed that. And I think it also allows the viewer more time to, in a funny sort of way, it demands time from the viewer to look at it and work out what was happening. I think that's right. And there are one or two of your illustrations in particular that we could talk about later that, that really bring that out. But yeah, so you've pulled out time and the process of drawing, which I think is really fascinating. Coming up on the podcast next week, we've got someone talking about conflict textiles. And again, the process of making is a very, very important part of the storytelling that's going on there. But you also talked about listening. And I think that's something that comes across in your work. On your website, there is text about some of the illustrations that are featured there and in the book Drawn Across Borders. You talk very much about the stories. In fact, I think in the introduction to Drawn Across Borders, you say something like, I'm very grateful to the people who sat still long enough to be drawn, but even more appreciative of the time and energy it takes to tell a personal story. And clearly, actually, that's something that really impacted you as you were drawing, the fact that people actually came and talked to you and that in that process of drawing, you understood. And because you weren't taking this sort of single second or microsecond snapshot photo, you were able actually to put into your drawing some of the things you learned in the process of it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that process of listening and spending time is, of, is of course, what all the good writers and photographers and filmmakers do. But there's no getting away from it when you're making a drawing. You, you are there by permission of the people in front of you. They are giving you permission to draw them because they're not walking off. And so you, whether you like it or not, and luckily I do like it, you sort of have to listen to what they're saying because they've got your attention and you've got theirs for at least an hour. It always starts, as all these conversations do, about food and weather and where you're from and the Premier League and then once you've got through the sort of veneer of it it becomes a very fast introduction mm -hmm. and I think because it's different and because often the hospitality in different parts of the world is so brilliant towards strangers then um, it's like a handshake you get a way in that you wouldn't ordinarily have mm -hmm. and then it leads to a, a sort of a developed understanding yeah. and, and a relationship and a sense of trust and I suppose it breaks well, yeah. drawing breaks down barriers all the drawings that I've done are usually I've arrived as an outsider, say, sat down on the street in northern Syria to draw, and I'm trying to make something, a disgusting thing to look at, or trying to make it look beautiful. But the person that I meet or the words that they put to that picture whilst I'm drawing, it's then their story that I'm trying to do justice to. So they then tell me about the prison down the road or 
their home or their father or whoever it is I usually follow that storyline and, and try and do justice to their words I suppose. Well we'll come back to some of that in a minute but you've talked a little bit about the various different media that are all visualising war for viewers in all sorts of different ways and I wonder if you can talk a little bit now about the style of your drawing so you draw in pen and ink and watercolour is this just what you've enjoyed and you know, found suits you? Or are there particular reasons why you gravitated towards that particular style of drawing? I think artists are always limited by their ability. So pen and ink drawing is something that I've practised a lot and can do. So I'm comfortable in it. Maybe if I was doing sculpture or oil painting, that would be a much worse result. But I think the nice thing about learning to draw an ink from a kind of practical point of view is that there's no there's no chance to stop and rub anything out you have to be bold you have to trust in your own ability that is a very useful tool drawing on location it's just sort of straight on the page in ink if you make mm-hmm. a mistake you just go over it again and it's a great sort of magic trick or an illusion for people to watch I suppose as well it's just the way that I have found best to try and comprehend those difficult scenes and mm-hmm. choosing what to leave in and what to put out to take out And that's an equally important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So pen and ink is something that really suits a reporter and the the challenge of reporting on live events as they're unfolding and as the stories are being told to you and your image and your understanding of what your drawing is developing on the page. You could clearly draw anything you wanted. And I know that your artwork goes well beyond war, but you, you particularly focus on current affairs, using your art to highlight humanitarian crises. So how did you get interested in that? What drove you to use your art in that way and do reportage rather than other kinds of drawing, other kinds of content? I think two halves of it, really. One is that that is a, those sorts of stories and parts of the world have always interested me. And so I think that seemed an obvious subject matter. But also when I was learning to draw, I, I just always liked the idea of having a balance between the story and making something look beautiful. And in some cases, you get a great interview with someone, but they wouldn't let you draw them. And in some cases, you can make a beautiful drawing of a mosque or of a landscape, but there isn't, there's nothing beyond that. So I guess the pinnacle is to try and have more than the sum of the two parts. And so it's through looking at all those sort of famous artists like Paul Nash and Ronald Searle and Paul Hogarth and Felix Topolsky, who'd all done it before, that I kind of set my sights on. Maybe this is a good moment, actually, to start looking at one or two of your drawings. And I should say to listeners that you can look at George's work by visiting his website, www.georgebutler.org. And of course, by buying the book that I've mentioned, Drawn Across Borders. So George, your work has taken you to a lot of different conflict zones. You've travelled to some really quite scary places, often heading into those places as other people flee. When did this start and where? Was Lebanon in 2011 your first trip as a reportage artist or did it go back earlier than that? It went back earlier than that, but I don't know when you become a reportage artist because I think the reportage element is so reliant on people who are seeing it in fact it probably isn't reportage until someone reads and passes it on so when I was still at university I went to Afghanistan in 2006 I think it was for a couple of weeks as an informal guest to the British Army they have these sort of embedded roles for artists Um, I drew the kind of young men and women that were in the bases of the British Army and some of the American bases and I realised then that a lot of the things that we've been talking about, there was some value to drawing. All the newsrooms that we saw and are now re-seeing this week and last week were all on the front line trying to get this sort of action shot for the 10 o'clock news. 
and I was quite rightly restricted to wandering around British Army bases with a pencil and a pad of paper. In a way, those stories were equally important. I mean, they weren't news necessarily, but they were what some of the servicemen and women did for 95% of the time, waiting around, cleaning guns, uh, mucking about in the canteen, playing jokes on each other and training and going on patrol. And that is a very boring part of war, but very much a part of it. So I sort of then set about trying to prove that illustration could match or certainly be as important as some of the brilliant photographers and filmmakers we've seen but it but it did more than that really i also realized at the same time as being in with the army in afghanistan that i was only seeing a very narrow spectrum of life there and so it it took me five or six years to go back but when i did then go back in 2014 it was very much sort of independent and i then got to see these places that you're seeing in the news at the moment bird street and the mosque in the center of center of kabul and ordinary life that so many people have been trying to get right for so long yeah and uh seems even more poignant at the moment yeah absolutely so i think i'd like to talk a bit more about your 2014 trip to afghanistan in a second but what you just said there about being confined to the british army bases on your first trip to afghanistan and there seeing 95 percent of the reality of conflict for soldier is sitting around waiting and actually sitting around and visualizing what might be about to happen when they go out of base maybe on an operation or it's something that we've talked about with other podcast guests our habits of visualizing war do tend to focus on the high stakes moments the drama the explosive bits broader picture of conflict broader picture of being a soldier being involved in the military or being a civilian goes well beyond those explosive moments and so maybe the fact that you weren't a frontline photographer at the time actually gave you access to a sort of a more realistic picture of war and enabled you to depict something that is that is that broader experience of conflict So you went back to Afghanistan in 2014, and on your website you write, almost each day I spent in Kabul there was an explosion or an attack from an armed group, but I soon realised that despite the uncertainty and insecurity, the majority of Afghan life continues to be as close to normal as possible. It was this Afghanistan that I found overwhelmingly inspirational to document. What saddened me was that so many of the articles and reports I read before I arrived although consistently accurate in detail and honest in their approach, made me expect the worst. This was far from the case in the small parts of Afghanistan I saw, especially in the north and west, away from Helmand and other parts of the south and east, where most of the reports seen on our televisions in the UK have come from. So I just should mention that we're recording this the week after the Taliban have retaken Afghanistan. Um, So there's a lot of poignancy, as you say, in, in looking back on your time in 2014 there. But it sounds as if what you wanted to do when you were there in 2014 was somehow round out what the wider public and the international community were seeing of Afghanistan and and draw that bigger picture and that picture that wasn't as bleak as some of our news reports were suggesting. Is that right? I think that's I think that's right in in every place that I've been. We're all part of the press industry in one way or another so it's sort of difficult to criticise but there is this feeding frenzy isn't there from place to place it's not COVID, it's Afghanistan this week and next week it'll be somewhere else. And that is fine. I know lots of people have contributed to it and I know lots of people who still contributed to it and their individual contributions are usually brilliant. But for some reason, the headline news doesn't give the sort of balance of, of a place. I mean, in the work that I do, for example, on the front line in very briefly in Iraq, in West Mosul, lots of journalists coming in and out, um, as was I, a part of the embedded convoys for single days at a time in and out of the front line. 
and photographers would take their cameras to the tops of buildings and sit and record the bombs exploding and they would be on your front page because that was what they were asked to do and that was their brief and then I would be part of that whilst machine guns are being fired off the roof I was sitting to a bloke I remember I think he was called Abbas he was about to go on leave smoking a shisha and telling us about where his family are from and what he was looking forward to and so in a way, it's like being allowed to backstage after you've seen this a scary movie and you, in fact, get to go around the back and be introduced to the actors and they're sitting there and having a cup of tea. And in a way, it's an insight that there's no place for it between 10 and 10.30 on, on the news channel when you're trying to get everything in. But that is equally important. Well, it does communicate it very well and it's humanising the experience, broadening it, rounding it out somewhat. I suppose it's another version of what you were saying about drawing the soldiers sitting around bored, messing around, playing jokes in camp and not always out on patrol. But it's much more common. It's such a common experience. I'm just thinking about some of the pictures in that book and all the other ones. And they're sort of bombed out buildings behind in West Mosul and then 25 kids diving into the, the river or all those sort of bakeries in, on every street corner in, in the Middle East, within, you know, within 20 miles. There has been part of a, a war zone or there's a little town in Hamal al-Alil who in 2014 was completely controlled by ISIS and then when we were there just tens and tens of people coming into the baths taking off their uniforms sharing an afternoon having massages I mean it's that juxtaposition that I think is important and it's those moments that I look for when I'm drawing. That certainly comes through in the drawing that you've done in Mosul so in Drawn Across Borders, there are some drawings from your second visit to Mosul in 2018. And, and it really is wonderful, actually. We're seeing images of the city sort of coming back to life, things partly repaired, people returning home. And you're telling stories and you're painting portraits of ordinary people who've lost their homes, actually, physically. Some of their homes have been literally destroyed. But of course, Mosul is still home to them. So what they're doing is actually finding other ways of making it home, making it life. And your illustrations really do sort of paint this picture of people bringing back a city to life and life kind of creeping back in, despite the sort of the destruction of the occupation of Mosul for several years prior to that. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Syria, actually. So I mentioned earlier that you went into Syria in 2012. And I wonder if you can tell us what you ended up drawing as you crossed the border, you found yourself in a sort of fairly small, empty, half-destroyed town. What did you end up drawing there and why did you choose to draw the things you drew? Yeah, well, the little town is called Azaz and it's uh, just inside the border of northern Syria. Now it's sort of held by Turkish forces. So no one thought at the time that 10 years later this would still be an issue. Well, we'd still be talking about it. But I, well, I met up with as many other journalists did. It was the Free Syrian Army and they were keen to tell their side of the story. This was at a time when lots of people in the West thought that the moderate opposition, as we called them, backed by the kind of most of the Syrian society would sort of march on Damascus and Assad would fall and there was going to be great hope and huge change. And that sadly hasn't been the case and Syria needs as much help as it ever has at the moment. I mean, there's nothing clever about what I picked to draw. I just picked the things that I thought that my friends at home could never have comprehended or be able to see. And I picked the things that characterised that war. And they were kids playing on tanks, the marketplace beginning to open up. I was there in a 10 days of lull in the fighting. And I drew a bloke called Ishmael who was walking through the town, watering his goats. I mean, anything and everything that I could begin to fit on the page. That was one of the moments that I'd sort of realised that I was kind of in the right place at the right time. And that anything that I could get on the page, if only it was a record and no one was ever going to see it, then that was its first aim. 
and then I scanned the drawings and sent them back to the Guardian and BBC and anyone who replied to my emails. Yeah, and it was early on in the Syrian war. In a way, it was less complicated. It was easy to know, more easy to know where you were and who could be trusted and what story you wanted to tell. Now, of course, that's been blurred, sometimes purposely, and it's very difficult for people to distinguish right and wrong and black and white, and which is, of course, the intention, but... Yeah, so I'm looking at one of the pictures you did in Syria right away, which is of this burnt out tank. And I think it's worth actually just talking a little bit about your style for a minute. So it looks to me like you start with lines and with sort of outlines. Is that right? And then you slowly fill in the details and you start to fill in a bit of colour here and there. But it's quite muted colour and you leave a lot of white space and you leave plenty of things not fully coloured in. And sometimes, in fact, you don't actually finish the outlines of everything. So there's the sketch of half a person almost standing on top of the burnt out tank at one point that bits of the tank are finished off and bits of the tank uh, are not. So there's sort of outlines of wheels or sort of shadows of wheels, but not the complete thing. So I wonder if you can just talk us through how the style helps you communicate what you want to communicate. This, this picture that I'm looking at has this sort of burnt out tank in the foreground. A few people, maybe some children as well as adults are kind of playing on it or looking at it. In the background, there are buildings, some of which have clearly been half destroyed or partially destroyed. There's some rubble. People going about their business on bikes and walking around so it's the ruins of a town that's still functioning mm. but with this massive monstrosity of a broken tank in the foreground yeah well the tank was relevant because it was a government tank and they had lost the battle there and that was a great victory for the opposition but the way that the images are built partly the immediacy of drawing from life means that uh, people come and go or something else catches your eye or there's a sort of rhythm and a pace to the way that you might make an image like that which is important to kind of keep up so that you have an energy in it and a fluidity and the luminosity of the page like you might with anything poetry or reading something out loud there has to be a sort of almost a sort of beat behind it and those sort of spaces are left on purpose I'm picking the bits that I think are interesting and they're made more interesting by having a white space next to them. There is a bit of style there. But apart from anything else, I think there's room for, in a way, it's sort of my job to make some of these places more understandable and sort of safe to look at. So I'm competing against the very full millions of pixels photograph on the next page. And so it doesn't seem necessary for me to try and copy the thing pixel for pixel in, in a way of having a camera knowing that somebody has already taken a photograph of it probably 10,000 times and that you can probably find that square on the internet by just typing it in it sort of allows me to interpret it as I saw it and to include the people but also I think it leaves space for people's imaginations you can sort of superimpose what you know of that world on top of it so those gaps are there for a reason really For me, I think the gaps partly raise questions as well. So the fact that the picture has lots of white space and half of the foreground is white space, whereas half of it's filled with this tank, and that there are sort of shadows of buildings in the background that you can partially see and partially not, it reminds me how little I know of that. It reminds me that what I'm getting is actually a sort of glimpse, but not the full story. And then it actually makes me want to know more and makes me want to find more. And I think in a photograph of the same square, there's the illusion of completeness, isn't there? Where you think you're getting something that's absolutely real, real time, instant, and 
accurate and for all that we know that pictures are easily manipulated these days and Photoshop does its own thing on them. But here, the white space, I suppose, helps remind me that I'm only just beginning to grasp the scene. And and the space also gives your eye time to wander through and to focus and and to do that sort of slow viewing that Mm. I suppose mirrors your drawing fast, but over an extended period of time. So there's time for people to walk through the square and, and move position and so on. And so one's viewing kind of keeps pace, I suppose, almost with that process of capturing. I'd quite like to talk about another of your Syria images, which is a queue of people at the bakery. It sounds like it was a three-hour queue and that you got very hot doing this picture because you were there yeah. for, for a good hour. So you've mentioned war is ugly, but you also like beauty in your paintings. And that's one of the things that we've talked about with other podcast guests, the way in which the aesthetics of an image can draw you in as a viewer and make you want to look more closely and engage there's these muted colors so some of the people in the queue are colored in some of them are not there's this sort of red tractor on one side that again raises a question in my head I think oh gosh people clearly haven't just come on foot here they've maybe come from further away I wonder where from and also I'm quite interested in the fact that some of the people are apparently oblivious to your existence and your presence but there are one or two people in the queue who appear to be looking directly at you were you trying in a sense to capture the gaze of people and and sort of, I suppose it builds a relationship between the viewer and the viewed. If Mm. someone's looking directly at you out of the picture, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think eye contact is very powerful. It's no no coincidence that every magazine and your newsagent has a a portrait of someone looking straight at you. That's else. But I guess I am primarily trying to be an observer, but the reality of that as, as a foreigner standing in someone else's country is totally unrealistic. So you are, whether you like it or not, part of it. I guess the one advantage of drawing is that it does take so long that actually you can sit in the corner and slowly things can go back to normal. It's often not taken very seriously. Certainly in places in that book, the subjects of the drawings had more things to worry about than whether I was representing them fairly on a page. And and that may be the extent of it. There's a bit of a balance. I like to capture the context and give a background to where these stories are from and then equally I like to sit and try and draw a portrait of someone and most of the time it looks like them but also if if it doesn't it was an excuse to talk to them so there's a sort of balance really both of those things and um, I think in journalism as a whole that is something we're sort of slightly re-understanding it used to be that you tried to write a very clinical account of what had happened and even the sort of diaries of those old explorers were diaries of temperature and time and distance covered and who was there and how many people they had and what they saw and details of the flora and the fauna and never a moment for emotion but now there seems it's about opinion and story and sort of lived experience and that I think is I think drawing plays into that this is a such a personal thing it's personal to me and it's the best ones are always the ones that I feel closest to so mm-hmm. that may be its greatest criticism at the same time I think it's very difficult to fall in favour of the person sitting in front of you. And I'd be first to admit that although these are my drawings, they are probably telling the stories of the person in front of me more than a kind of balanced, objective view of the Syrian crisis or what happened in Afghanistan or what happened in Armenia a year ago. Again, we've chatted interestingly to photojournalists like the one we had on the podcast last week who 
I think he said that if he's learned one thing from reporting on and, and photographing conflict over the years, it's that there isn't one homogenous experience of it. There's as many experiences as there are people. And so if you want to visualize a conflict, you need to visualize it through all these different experiences and emotions and individuals. And so, you know, so there is a very good reason actually for engaging, you know, personally, individually with people and just being aware and accepting that, you know, we might in the past have had a tendency to visualize conflict in quite sweeping and universalizing ways. But as you say, that that tendency does appear to be shifting somewhat. Can I ask you one quick further question about this bakery queue picture? I'm just intrigued to know. So is it is it purely about what you had time to do? Is it purely about aesthetics and what you thought would look beautiful? What are the reasons for some people being more coloured in and more filled in than others. And I'm asking that because I think it has a really powerful impact in that some people, for me, come out from the page as individuals, but it's also very powerful that others could be anyone and this could almost be a bakery queue in any town in Syria and that they stand in as representatives of a wider population. So personally, I really love the balance or the tension between individuality and anonymity, but I'm just wondering what's behind your decision to colour in and fill in some of the details of the people and not others. I think in this case, it was just sun and style and ability more than a sort of conscious decision to represent all bakeries across Syria, although I think that is one of the nice advantages about drawing. They can be other places too. I think the way it works is that if you draw a good figure and it looks like the person in the queue and you make more of that, if there's someone who doesn't look as good or you muck it up or uh, you're in a rush or they probably move, then you don't draw attention to that later on. And, and in that case, it's just a bit like so build, you're building the image as it goes along. The one I'm imagining, the one you're talking about, is the, there's one with a whole queue of people but on the bottom right hand corner there's a man with his head in his hands leaning against the wall and for me he summed up that scene and he's much bigger than the others and slightly out of proportion because I want you to look at it but also he happens to be the one that was sitting still the longest so he gets my attention for the longest so there's the balance I'm not pretending it's it's, uh, every decision is contributes to the story but those are the those are the sorts of things you're weighing up and busy crowd scenes always look good in ink but I also wanted the mosque in the background which had been bombed a few days before and then I think the ink has also spilt on the page there so there's a sort of circle on the bottom of the, of the pot there's a kind of handmade feel to it as well and I think that's what you get from working in that way in ink standing on the street and that's part of the story and that's part of the authenticity of the image because actually what you were trying to capture was the fact that it's an incredible ordeal to queue for three hours for three flatbreads and you know because that's the food that you've got available to you in this in this semi-destroyed place you've mentioned a couple of times you know how people react to you when you're drawing and I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that so for example again from your Syria series you've got this incredible picture you went along to a prison at one point and you stood outside and you drew you know lots of people in the prison but one man in particular sort of stared at you for a good while and stayed still and you you drew him and and then after about 15 minutes didn't he say to you can I move now and you know your interpretation initially had been oh he looks he looks a bit scary is he trying to sort of eyeball me and actually he'd been posing all he had been Um, posing yeah and then after a while, he got bored and wanted to sit at the back. I think it was just another one of my own misconceptions about people that are behind bars should presumably be scary and terrifying and not very friendly. But that obviously isn't the case when you're sitting opposite them. So, yeah, he posed whilst I drew him in the front and then he went around and sat at the back. I guess that story is available to me only as a someone who would, would sit and draw in any other circumstance. That wouldn't have happened. 
so some people actually are very happy to be drawn and and you know sit and pose and then are other people less comfortable with it presumably you've had people who've not wanted you to take their likeness with pen yeah, and ink quite rarely actually but there have been there have been some yeah in the middle east often more difficult to draw women than men which is the sort of obvious one as a, as a white man to try and have access uh, i remember doing some interviews with syrian refugees who were being looked after by medicine sans frontieres in kilis in turkey on the border and i drew all the men as they gave testimonies but some of the girls didn't want to be drawn a couple of times in transylvania in romania there's been a very kind of great sort of societal difference between some of the sort of classes and ethnicities in transylvania so it makes like sitting down and taking photographs or or being a foreigner it's not dangerous but they just don't necessarily like to interact and so a couple of times i've um had stopped drawing there broadly speaking kind of doing a disservice i could and would go anywhere in the world with a pad and paper not expensive it doesn't highlight the difference between you and the person you're drawing it's open you probably think you're not very good at it and that you're it's quite funny that you've got the time to do that they don't attach value to the drawing like we would kind of come back and sit on the gallery wall so there's really no threat mm-hmm. you couldn't possibly be writing something that's having an opinion on on them because you're not writing anything so it's a really safe way and it's not just how people react when you're when they see you on the street it's more they go beyond that it's almost in my experience it has been they have wanted to almost look after me so take me under their wing and say come and see this come and see that let me show you this have you got a place to stay Mm -hmm. and um the only common denominator as i can work out is i've had a pad and a piece of paper So people have not tended on the whole to see drawing as a threat. I wonder how much some people see it as as actually a powerful medium. You went back to Syria in 2013 and you were there with an aid organisation at that point and you were particularly focusing on civilian suffering. So you ended up in a children's ward in a hospital. And I think you write about this in your book. War photographers often talk about hiding behind a camera. And on this day, I did the same, hiding behind my drawing board. I drew Bassam, who was 10. Three days earlier, he lost his brother, his mother and his left leg in an airstrike. The nurse came in and pulled the blankets from Bassam's bed to reveal his injury. She said nothing, but I knew what she was telling me. If you want to know what really happens here, look at this. I understand that his father initially was uncomfortable or thought there was no point in you drawing him. And so it sounds like that nurse and I think other people in the ward thought, actually, no, the world needs to see this somehow. Is that how things worked out? Yeah, that's exactly how it worked out. I think those moments are always full of sort of decisions to to draw things or not to draw things. What do you take a photograph of? What becomes, you know, there's an age old sort of Don McCullen with the with the starving albino kids in, in East Africa. Should you take in the photograph? Should you not? And not likening this situation to that. But it is a moment when I sort of feel like I have challenged my conscience to stay in a place or not. And this little boy had lost his leg and was lying unconscious and in fact saying that art wouldn't make a difference. And you know, I probably agreed with him. I mean, and 12 years on, we probably should still agree with him. That little boy will be um, probably 22 now and uh, will still be walking with no legs. So I, I guess the case for it is that it sort of does justice to their story. It was published in some newspapers. It's now in the National Archive in the V&A. Um, it'll stay there forever. One of the reasons that it went there was because once it's in the collection, it can never be passed on somewhere else. don't know whether it makes a difference, but I sort of thought if, it, if there was a way of telling that story, then through illustration and sort of meaning well was a good, was, was good enough. And I think it was.
with the Syrians that I know and interact with now were, were thankful at the time that anybody was listening and still are because that hasn't happened and didn't happen. And what we're seeing in Syria at the moment is a result of, broadly speaking, Western inaction. You say inaction, but I suppose one might as well also say apathy. And again, this is something that we've talked about to you know another conflict photographer, Hugh Kinsella Cunningham, whose photographs, he works mostly in the DRC at the moment. And what he hopes his photographs do is make people care fundamentally. And then if people care, then more people might do something. And then that might actually lead to some kind of action, whether that is charitable giving, whether that is political action, but some kind of action. As you say, it doesn't fix the victims who you're capturing in these images. And and I think you write in your book about actually how conflicted you were and the fact that the drawing is perhaps more unfinished than some of them, because you, you were, I suppose, wrestling with this question of, should I sketch this? Should I not? That gets me asking, actually, about your red lines, really. You've touched on this. Are there things that you absolutely don't illustrate and don't draw? And is that for ethical reasons? Or is that actually partly because you can't bear to look or because you don't think other people will want to look? People's children and people's pets. Yeah, there are. But I think there's, there's real context to it. So, for example, I was in Armenia before Christmas and we'd been there, me and a journalist friend of mine, Gareth Brown, trying to get a story together about the end of their war with Azerbaijan. And for days and days and days, we were wandering around trying to get, get sort of something to go on. And on the last day, we sort of visited this trench uh, with all these young men standing and it was the most extraordinary sort of scene with a kind of poorly dug trenches with little spades and like 20 year old blokes standing around in the freezing cold. Uh, the war had finished, but they didn't trust the Azeri army to sort of keep the ceasefire. So they were standing, trying to protect their villages. And that I thought was a scene worth drawing. It was something that I thought we'd left behind in the history books. And yet just the other side of Europe, supported by various other superpowers around the world, was this scene of, of 1917. Obviously, there's a bit more and more into showing the journalists around. And then the most exciting part was to show a grave of somebody underneath a tank and indeed the kind of burnt hand within some old uh, clothes. And for me, that was less relevant to draw. Like I could have made a nice drawing, a very anatomically beautiful drawing of a, yeah, of somebody's body, but there wasn't really a story to it. So I think the red line moves with that being irrelevant to one of the stories we were trying to tell, then I think then that I could have sat down and, and drawn it. I drew some extraordinary scenes in Nepal with where I accompanied a surgeon from England called Donald Samet, and he was rebuilding the hands of people with leprosy. And one man who was under the local anaesthetic having his, his leg amputated. So these are like particularly gory moments. But it seemed like it was totally relevant to stop and draw and be interested and ask questions because they're all contributing to the idea that a sort of forgotten disease that we think is medieval and doesn't exist anymore. It's case by case, I think. And uh, it, there's a fine line between you know, voyeuristic and sort of sensationalization. Uh, I think as an individual, you can decide that it would be more difficult on somebody else's behalf. Yeah, it's something that's quite difficult, actually, almost to put into words and to sort of have a set of rules around, isn't it? But from what you've said, it's partly about taste and it is partly a little bit about ethics, not voyeurism or sensationalism. But it's a lot about storytelling and it's about finding yeah. these unknown stories, these surprising stories. This, the couple of cases you just talked about are the fact that, you know, we have these misconceptions that people don't do trench warfare anymore, for example, or that leprosy is a disease that's died. And, and one of the things you're trying to do is show, you know, what actually there are parts of the world 
world where this might still be going on or where our understanding of the world is limited and your pictures are filling that in somewhat. Yeah, in the news we see, is it appropriate to show Afghans falling out of a military jet flying away from Kabul airport? Probably not. I didn't watch it. It sounded revolting, but it drew attention to Afghanistan like Afghanistan has never had, certainly in the last 10 years. So it's ongoing wrestle. Just on the subject of storytelling a little bit. So you've been to Gaza and the West Bank with Oxfam. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you decided what to capture in your drawings there. So the drawings that you did there seem to be a mixture of portraits and cityscapes. And you've talked a little bit about the fact that your drawing and the subjects you choose ends up being led by the people you meet there and the stories they tell and so on. Do you tend to start with a plan in advance? Do you have a visualisation in your head? Of, mm. Well, I think I'll, I'll try and capture X and Y and Z. Do, do you start with a plan or do you tend to go without a plan? And does an organisation like Oxfam have a plan for you, for example? They definitely have a plan for you. And uh, lots of journalists won't go on those sorts of trips because or with military or with convoys or because you are led around the things that they want to show you. But I think in a way, as an artist, I can bypass some of that because I don't know why I think I can. In Palestine and uh, in Gaza, for example, I didn't really mind what I was being shown. As far as I concerned, everything within the Gaza Strip was to be drawn, whether it was the very ordinary market or the main road or the set of traffic lights. Or I drew a, a market street which... The only relevance to the story was that it was called, I think it was called Trans. It had an enormous transistor on the crossroads. So that was there trying to provide the three or four hours of electricity that people in Gaza had at the time. And I drew the fishermen who were only allowed to go out to fish about three miles into the Mediterranean. You know, this is this holiday destination for most, and they are um, were being shot at if they went too far out. So in a way, in that case, I was led round, taken round by an Oxfam car with an Oxfam security man and an Oxfam charity liaison person. And those big INGOs operate as a huge industry. And I am there because they want to raise money and that they want to tell their stories. But I think as an artist, I hope I can do that fairly. One of the most extraordinary scenes was at the end of the bar. I was there, I think, for 24 hours, less than that maybe in um, in uh, Gaza, because you have to have permission from the Israeli authorities. So they kind of make it difficult on purpose. The two scenes that I remember is one having lunch in this amazing place down the tiny little street and all the way down the street, everybody's laid out all the things that they're no longer using. There's no recycling, there's no imports or exports, just whatever you've got has to go back around. So old fridges, old shoes, anything can be picked up and swapped and remade. And then the other scene was, it sort of completely caught me out, this family from one of the refugee camps set up uh, after the Second World War were out on the beach under an umbrella, drinking drinks, and there was a lifeguard. And they were playing in, in the sea, all you know, dressed in their full black outfits. And yeah, it, it just sort of seemed completely out of place that a lifeguard should be playing and kids should be learning to swim. Those moments sort of come through, even if you know that you are being shown them, there is still value to go. And what you've just said there, I suppose, echoes your experiences of, of going back to Mosul and wanting to get past the habits we have of visualising Gaza, Mosul, war zones as simply being about war. They are very much about these pockets of peace, these islands of peace. This is something that another our podcast guest has talked about, Frank Muller, who writes about peace photography and the importance of showing that and rounding out this picture. So what use did Oxfam make of your uh, Gaza and your Palestine drawings? That's a good question. I don't think they made any use of them, actually. 
I think in the end they just they didn't use them. I guess they're in an archive to be used at some stage mm-hmm. for a campaign. But I guess the book comes with some relief when things are published because it kind of gives a legitimacy to the people that you sat in front of. And until they're published, as you touched on before, it's not really a reportage, it's just some person making a drawing because they think it's interesting. So when it's published, it's sort of reassuring to think that I did what, was, what they thought I was doing, which was writing down their story and telling someone else about it. In the case of Syria, it was very sad, and the same in Afghanistan, I suppose, because they sat there in front of endless press and endless consultants and endless embassy staff who all came and took their testimonies and said that we will react and we'll do right by you. And that never happened. And certainly in Syria, when I spoke to people in Lebanon, loads of them said, what's the point in us talking to anyone anymore? We tell our story every day so somebody comes past with a bit of ID and and then goes on their way and nothing ever changes. So that is the value. It's nice to think that they've been put to use. Yeah. So the book then came out this year, Drawn Across Borders, and it um, captures your some of your drawings from Iraq, Syria, but, but also Lebanon, Myanmar, the Balkans, and so on. So actually, it covers all sorts of different migrations, and not mm. all of which are driven by conflict, and not all of which involve people actually leaving their home country. So sure. I think that's how you start the Kenyan section. Migrations happen internally as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think, as you put it in the introduction, you're interested in introducing the humans behind the headlines. So really trying to address that sense that there are people behind the headlines. But for some reason, we just keep coming back to the same, you know, the headlines keep telling the same kinds of stories and very little traction. Sort of individual stories get very little traction. Um, So what do you think you achieved by bringing all these different images of migration and conflict together in the one book? What broader story are you trying to tell about either conflict or migration? There are, I think, 272 million international migrants in the world. This book is of stories about why people move. And in each chapter, which is only about a thousand words, probably six or seven images in each, I just try and expand one of the myths around migration. And they're, they're all our kind of political favourites that they come and take jobs or those people come and they never want to go home or they take advantage of the NHS. Whatever they are, whatever has been written on the side of a bus before in a sort of bandwagon way. And I suppose it was directed primarily for the people that I'd met and secondly for a young adult audience that have probably uh, got people from different ethnicities or um, in their classrooms, but may never have been able to ask the question because it's such a societal taboo. Where are you from? And often that sort of question followed up by like, no, where are you really from? Which is obviously awful. So it was kind of based around that. And I had had an understanding. Basically what I learned in, in going to these places, and, and it probably took me 10 years to do, I realised that I just kind of learned enough to know that there was much more to kind of know about, understand about identity and how people see themselves and country of origin and where can you call home? And it seemed to me that it wasn't necessary to try and it's okay to talk about it without understanding. You don't have to have everything covered off like perfectly eloquently, even out loud, even in the press, even as a politician. It's okay to still not fully understand or be able to comprehend the experiences mm-hmm. of people that have moved around the world in search of something better. But it's still okay to talk about it. And I think that was the point of the book, mm-hmm. that it's okay to ask all of those questions that we, you know, that our grandparents sort of say, is it okay to ask that? And yes, it is, as long as you are open to the answers. 
I, I mean, you're touching on lots of really interesting and important things there. The, sort of the subjects that are taboo that we find hard to ask about and find out about, which then sort of circles back into us not knowing, but the importance yeah. of knowing and understanding and our very limited, limited habits of visualising conflict and post-conflict and migration. This is something that one of the artists on our podcast has talked about. How do we visualise the rupture? of forced migration uh, the loss how do how do we visualize that it's almost unvisualizable and mm-hmm. I, I mean I think for example your page on Lebanon it's really hard hitting in that respect in that uh, what you've chosen to do there instead of visualizing people is visualize the objects mm-hmm. that a family in a rush scooped up when they were fleeing Syria into Lebanon and um, you know one of the the million refugees from Syria that ha- ended up in Lebanon and this sort of extraordinary accidental collection of things like a remote control that no longer works because of course you're nowhere near the television or whatever it was that it originally controlled yeah I think the book is amazing at there are lots of portraits of people and cues of people and maybe one or two of the images that we might stereotypically connect with migration uh, but then many many other images that round out that picture um uh, and 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 fill it in for us with splashes of color here and that and I love the picture that you've got on your page of the Balkan route um, and I wonder if you can tell me, I think you must have drawn this before the Brexit campaign. Is that right? I think it was in 2015 that you were drawing this, maybe? Yeah, end of 2015, maybe. It's really, really interesting because it looks so like an image that Nigel Farage used as some of his campaigning about anti-migration campaigning. It, it is a cue of people but you're using it in such a different way actually to get us to look at the individuals and to hear their stories and pull out with your coloration you know some individual stories while communicating that kind of the numbers the scale of the people involved yeah I mean I think that was part of the why that campaign was so disingenuous but in a way yeah those scenes were that's what they looked like but it's just the context in which you delivered them in that was made them right or wrong I suppose that's an interesting question you know two images can be delivered so differently and one can can be true and one can be blurred or not true or and that goes on I guess that's it's going on at the moment as well And no doubt the images in Afghanistan of people being packed onto planes will be used as sort of similar fodder for that side of the political world. I guess, in a way, that's what's nice about drawing is that I think even though it wouldn't stand up in a court of law and even though it's probably not an exact representation like a camera might, a photograph might be, in a way it does come with the truth in the way that it's delivered and the message that it carries. And that I don't think can be said for necessarily all the images that arrive on our mobile phones delivered as sponsored ads or paid for coverage or by single news organizations run by two or three powerful men in a way those images although they were taken with a camera the kind of the best technological tool that we have for capturing a moment aren't always real. I if I may I'd love to ask you about one final set of images You've been to Yemen and I've been looking at some of the drawings you've done at the conflict there. And I think one of the things that strikes me when I look at them is how little visualised that conflict actually is. We don't see much of it in our news feeds. You know, we don't get very many glimpses into it. So I think one thing I'd be interested to know is who are you trying to reach with your drawings? But also what are you trying to communicate? So it struck me that there's a lot of stillness 
in your pictures from Yemen. So, for example, I'm thinking of some images of men sitting with guns, but there's no firing. People sitting and standing around, a stash of guns. What story are you telling there about the the progress of the conflict? That's a very good question. I do remember writing an article for the Washington Post that I don't think was ever used. I actually don't think these images were published in the end. We were in a part of Yemen in the east called Al-Makra, which is next to Oman. And I guess it was one of the places that you could get into, although not very many people did. You know, the real conflict, as we imagine it or saw it or heard about it, was was at the other end of the country. So these images wouldn't represent that. But they did represent a struggle between Oman and Saudi forces so trying to keep control of that border. So I was there with a, he was an ex-general in the Yemen army, for want of a better word, tribal leader who had amassed a sort of small force of militia. And so we were just sort of travelling with them. So you're right, it was an uncoordinated group, a sort of set of photos of young men with guns in a place without ever honing in on a broader theme. In that sense, I think they were quite interesting photographs, like interesting to get people to pose with their guns or to get these incredibly powerful people to sit on their their trucks or like they took us across the desert all through the dunes just to sort of show us the countryside one afternoon and so in a way nice drawings but not the most powerful piece of reportage because there's a sort of lack of direction with the story and it was also part of the world that although lots of people trying to get in and out there wasn't huge sort of interest from press mm-hmm. people producers and editors and to sort of soak up that thing so uh, I think that is one of the struggles. In a way, you can make a great set of drawings, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done your job. <laughs> That's quite frustrating. So, yeah, it comes back, I suppose, to that combination between drawing and storytelling. But also what you've just said about uh, the fact that, you know, maybe media organisations weren't so interested in some of these drawings from Yemen. You know, I wonder whether the lack of direction of the conflict itself uh, might have been playing or the lack of direction of that particular aspect of the conflict that you Mm. were looking at might have played a role. But yeah, media organisations are quite wedded, I suppose, to the stories that they want to tell. And unless you're producing stories that are in that vein, they might be less inclined to, to buy them up. So, George, you're incredibly modest about your art, but it's had a huge impact on me and actually on other people I've shown your book to. I think that you perhaps undersell the power and the impact of it. I know that these ripple effects are sometimes quite hard to gauge and quite hard to measure. But the storytelling that you do with your art, the slow unfolding of real people's stories is an important part of the wider picture. And I think really genuinely has the power to shape our habits of visualising conflict and its impact and its sort of ongoing impact through migration and so on. I know that the stories that you've heard, the scenes that you've witnessed, the drawings that you've done have impacted you profoundly and perhaps never more so than in Syria. And you clearly connected a lot with the people you met in Syria. In 2014, you got together with three friends and set up the Hands Up Foundation, which is a charity that funds health and education programmes. I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit more about the charity. It's a small charity. And although we set it up between three, four friends living in London, the nice thing was that it soon became much more than that. And importantly, I think with all charities, it's not about the people who start them, it's about where the money goes. We raise money through events and trusts and all the usual ways and, and send them to paying quite unsexy projects in the Middle East, which we think people aren't looking at uh, or have overlooked. So we're paying some doctor's salaries in Northern Syria, um, 21 medical staff there. We're paying um, some teacher salaries who are looking after 300 kids in Lebanon. And we do a little bit about around prosthetics as well. 
um, providing limbs because of those that we can find and get in touch with. So yeah, it's great. It's not, it sounds so sort of philanthropic and altruistic as like an individual artist working at home to be able to be connected with a part of the world that I knew very briefly is really nice and also makes me feel well in touch with them. I guess I'm very much influenced by all, the, all the, the drawings that I did there. But it's just nice that it's become more than that, really. In that sense, we're sort of carrying on for as long as humanly possible. We didn't sort of think we'd be doing it 10 years later, but it looks like we'll set for the next 10 years. It was odd to think, even though that I was only in that part of the world for a short period of time, the influence of those people that I met was sort of enough to, to be working on this project 10 years on. Yeah, that's a nice, a nice thing, I think. And if you want to find out more about the Hands Up Foundation, you can just go to handsupfoundation.org and donations are always welcome. As you say, George, it's a, a part of the world where in an ideal world, you wouldn't still be working there and requiring donations and so on, but there's a lot still to resolve. Mm. Do you think you're going to be carrying on drawing conflict for much of the rest of your career or what's what's in the future going forward? Uh, I don't think it has to be conflict, but I like the idea of tackling issues that usually I don't know anything about, but learn about and the issues that are difficult or hard to visualize. So I suspect I've been doing a lot more work around climate and biodiversity and uh, did a project with a friend of mine called Ruth Ganesh about coexistence and she put 100 life-size wooden elephants uh, in Green Park, which you may have seen, and I produced some artwork to sort of better describe what they were doing, where they were going, where the money was raised for. So all those sorts of issues, sometimes difficult, sometimes big subjects with enormous facts we feel helpless beside. I'd like to, to continue drawing. I'll definitely do that, but I don't know what, what's next yet. Subjects that are hard to visualise. That's a, a challenging but really fascinating career path. Yeah. So, George, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. Just a reminder that you can buy... George's book, Drawn Across Borders, from George's website, and presumably also many other uh, high street bookstores and so on. But thank you very much for sharing your experience of illustrating, of reportage with us, and the ways in which you have been using your pen and ink, your drawing board. I think the theme of what you've been saying today is really sort of illuminating aspects of conflict that we don't see through other media um, so often. I was going to say, thank you for having me. It's, it's nice to remember all these places and talk about them out loud. Suddenly realise I haven't spoken about them for a long time. So it's nice. Thank you. Good. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for tuning in again. Please do join us again next week when we'll be continuing this mini-series looking at visual representations of conflict in different media. So as I mentioned earlier, my guest will be Roberta Bacic, who curates an extraordinary collection of conflict textiles from all over the world. And we'll be talking to her about the material representation of different aspects of conflict, often by women who want to express the impact it's had on them and their families. Some of these textiles are acts of resistance as much as resilience. So we're going to be talking a bit about art activism or artivism, a thread that we'll also pick up in podcasts to follow when we look more at the art of peace. So please do keep tuning in to the Visualising War podcast. We've got lots of interesting material coming up. If you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join our conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War 
or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standandrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Gertin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>